When confronted with sin, how do you react? I think most of us react in one of two ways. We either justify our actions, and we say something along the lines, well, I had to. If you only would recognize the full scope, uh, this sin that I committed was just a little sin over here, and there was a whole world of mess over there, and in order to avoid the world of mess over there, I had to do this little sin over here. So we justify our actions. We make excuses. Other times, instead of justifying, we just blame others. Well, I I had to sin because so-and-so. I see this a lot with guys who struggle with lust. And what they do is they look at a girl and they say, it's her fault. I wouldn't have lust in my heart if she didn't dress the way she dressed. But come on, guys, let's face the facts. You have lust in your heart that you haven't dealt with. She could be wearing a burqa covered head to toe, and you would still find a way to lust after her because it's not her fault you have lust. You have lust in your heart. But it's really convenient to blame her, isn't it? And so we don't like to take responsibility. We justify and we blame. But there's a third way that we can handle being confronted with sin. That third way is take responsibility admit that we are wrong, and to repent. And that's what we'll study today as we continue our series, the summer in the Psalms. We've got this one and then one more, possibly. And then we'll get into Ephesians. So we're going to do a series called Better Together next, a study through Ephesians. But today, not only will we do this summer in the Psalm series, but we're also going to ask one of our questionable questions. So if you're not familiar with our church, uh, we have inside your bulletin an area where you, you know, sometimes you just have questions. Questions pop up. Sometimes it's during the sermon. Sometimes it's late at night. I had one guy tell me that he, he woke up with a question, and by the time he got to church, he forgot it. That's okay. But if he ever remembers it, he can write it down here and then turn it into our offering box back there, and I will try my best to take time and answer it. We're going to answer one of those questions today, and the question comes... From she was reading, or he, I don't know who it was, in all honesty, but it was uh, from 1 Chronicles 14.3. They were reading through 1 Chronicles 14.3, and she said, or the person said, we find that David had multiple wives. How can he be a man after God's own heart if he has multiple wives? For the answer, we're going to look through a couple different places. First, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 17, which will give us commands for the, for the kings of Israel. Next, we'll jump to 1 Chronicles 14.3, and we'll see what that multiple wise reference is within its context. Then we'll look over to Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 13.14, and that's the first time we find that David will be a man after God's own heart. He's not even named David's not even named, but we get that reference or we get that phrase, a man after my own heart. Uh, And then we're going to end with Psalm 51. And I think Psalm 51 really gives us the answer to the question. So let's first turn to Deuteronomy 17. Uh, So if you remember the context of Deuteronomy, context is really king when reading Scripture. When you're trying to interpret and apply Scripture... Context is key. So the context of Deuteronomy, if you remember, the history of Israel, 
they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up Moses to lead them out. He leads them out. He's done all these miracles. And then he brings them to the edge of the promised land. He's, they send in 12 spies. Ten, 12 of them come back. 10 of them say, it's awesome land, but the people are too big and we're going to die. Two of them said, it's awesome land, and the people are big, but God is bigger. The people go with the ten, so they don't trust God. Even though they just witnessed so many miracles in Egypt, they don't trust God to give them the promised land. And as a result, we've got the book of Numbers. And that's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until the unfaithful generation dies off. After the unfaithful generation dies off, they're all set to enter into the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy is renewing the covenant that God had made with Israel before they enter the promised land. So it's going to go through a bunch of laws. It's going to go through a bunch of if-thens. If you remain faithful to God, Israel, God's going to bless you. But if you turn your back on God, he's going to raise up another nation to, uh, to prosecute or persecute you. So that's the book of Deuteronomy. And in that, we find a bunch of laws. One uh, set of those laws is laws concerning kings. So we'll pick up in 1714. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. All right, so we've got a few rules for a king. These rules would apply to King David, just as they would apply to King Saul, just as they would apply to King Solomon. So the first rule is he must be an Israelite. Don't make a foreigner a king over you. The second rule is that he cannot acquire many horses. Uh, this was so that, well, I'll talk about it in a second. The third is not acquire many wives. The fourth is not acquire excessive silver and gold. And the fifth is must read a copy of the law every day. So the, the idea behind the king of Israel is that he would actually be like a vassal king. So Israel would recognize that Yahweh is their one true king, and the king over Israel, the human king, would just be an intermediary for Yahweh, King Yahweh. So he's acting as a king in front of them just for the real king. He's not the real king, he's just acting as a king. So then these rules apply. One is, and they all actually come back to, this king has to trust Yahweh. He can't usurp Yahweh's power and try to become king himself. He's got to trust King Yahweh. So he can't go get many horses. Horses were like the tank of warfare back then. So what he's saying is, don't get such a big military power that you don't trust Yahweh for victory anymore. You must always trust Yahweh for the victory. The second one, not acquire many wives. Once again, uh, he's got to trust Yahweh that Yahweh would show that he is a powerful king. Oftentimes, kings would acquire many wives to show off how big and powerful they were. 
And he's saying, no, you're not big and powerful. Yahweh is big and powerful. You're just a man. And then must not acquire excessive silver and gold. And once again, you must rely on Yahweh. If you build up this huge savings, then when tragedy strikes, you'll turn towards your savings for comfort and not Yahweh. When drought happens, you'll just turn towards your savings. So all of these three rules right here say you have to trust the one true king, King Yahweh. Don't usurp his power and think you're the real king. The final one also leads into that. Must, be, must read a copy of the law every day. So your ideas of how this uh, world should operate aren't near as important as King Yahweh's ideas of how this world should operate. King Yahweh is the one who really governs. Your job as the king, as the human king, is to implement King Yahweh's laws. So those are the laws concerning kings. These laws are going, they're so important to understand as well. So reading, once again, reading in context is key. And being able to apply these laws in context is key. So for many years, before I, before I discovered this, or before really I was taught this, I always thought in 2 Kings, when it goes through the list of everything Solomon acquires, I always thought that was like a brag on how great King Solomon is. I, I'm sure many of you have thought that too. So Solomon, it, it goes through this list, right? And it go, what does it say? It talks about all of Solomon's wives. And then it goes through the list and talks about all of Solomon's silver and gold. And then it goes through and it talks about all of Solomon's chariots and horses. It's not a coincidence that it's listing the exact things that they're not supposed to acquire. And so it's not a brag about King Solomon. It's actually a condemnation. It's saying King Solomon messed up. He broke the laws that God had given him. So 1st and 2nd Kings were written before the exile. So go back to our history, you know, Deuteronomy is written before they enter the promised land. They enter the promised land. They uh, start to thrive in the promised land. You've got Joshua. You've got Judges, which is all about them felling in the promised land. Then God raises up Samuel, who, who anoints the first king. We won't get into all the history, but eventually they get to the point where they have violated the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic covenant so much so that God says, enough, I'm raising up Babylon, and they're going to come conquer you. That's the exile. First and Second Kings was written before the exile, and it is written as a judgment piece against Israel. It was written to say, hey Israel, you know how bad you guys messed up? And then it just goes and it, it re repeats all the places in history where Israel rebelled against God. All throughout First and Second Kings, we see Israel just messing up big time. Like Solomon, gathering himself women, treasures, and horses. Right? Now, First and Second Chronicles is written after the exile. So they've been exiled, but even in their exile, God was good to them. So first it's Babylon, and they get taken away by Babylon, and we all know the story of Daniel and, and how he rose to power. And since God had blessed him, the king blesses all of the Israelites, and, and they're actually living pretty decent. They're not in their own town. They don't have uh, freedom, but you know they're living pretty comfortable lives. And then Persia takes over Babylon, and now they're living really comfortable 
And so when they finally, Persia's MO was when they would conquer a, a city, instead of taking the people captive and taking them back to their own land or like mixing them up, they would let them go back home. So the Israelites could go back home. But some of them are living pretty comfortably. And it's hard work to rebuild a nation. It's hard work to rebuild the walls that were torn down. It's hard work to rebuild the temple that was torn down. It's hard work to to work the soil again, to get rid of all the rocks. It is difficult work. And some of the Israelites weren't up for it. And so 1st and 2nd Chronicles was written as a piece of history to say, hey, we can come back. And you know, it wasn't all bad. There were great times, and God blessed us well. And if we come back, God can bless us again. So First and Second Kings, written as a judgment, highlights all the places they went wrong. First and Second Chronicles, written as a way to encourage them to come back to the land that God had given them. And that's the context that we read our question in. So, 1 Chronicles 14.3 says, And David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David fathered more sons and daughters. So we're going to have to unpack that a little bit, because, uh, because he, what is he doing? He's violating that third law that kings are supposed to follow, right? I think what helps is, first of all, knowing that this is not a stamp of approval. This isn't God saying, yay, good job, David, you acquired for yourself many wives, totally violating my law, but you're the man. I don't think that's it at all. I think reading it within the context will really help us out. So uh, we, if we turn back to like 12, no, let's, let's go all the way back. Uh, 11, we find that David is anointed as king. And then the very next section David takes Jerusalem. This is a very important uh, sacking because Jerusalem was a stronghold of the Philistines. The Jebusites defended Jerusalem, and a reason is, if you've ever been to the city of David, it's very uh, uh, difficult. They had, it, it's up on a mountain, it's got high walls, and normally what would happen is just a siege would be laid, right? And you just wait for them to get dehydrated and die. But Jerusalem had its own water source. The city of David had its own water source. And so they couldn't just wait them out. So David sacking Jerusalem is an incredibly big deal. It would have been heard about all throughout that region, right? So then it goes through and starts listing all the different mighty men. And then that's going to take up the rest of 11 and 12. Then 13, we're going to see that the ark is finally being brought back. That's a big, important deal. The ark had been almost forgotten about with Saul. Saul had let the ark get captured. And it was God that actually returns it to the Israelites. But now the the ark starts to come back. And then you've got David, a list of uh, how the king of Tyre sent uh, messengers to David and they build him a house And David, sorry, picking up in verse 2, and David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And then we've got, following this section, is David defeating the Philistines. So what's going on here is not a stamp of approval on all of the actions, but the chronicler is setting up the idea that David was a powerful king. 
And how did powerful kings operate in that day? They accumulated many wives. So for the reader, he's not reading, oh, yeah, that's a stamp of approval. David, uh, uh, or God, is saying, yes, accrue for yourself many wives. What the reader is reading here is that David was a mighty king. And not only was he mighty within Israel, but he was powerful and well-known all over the place. So I think that helps us understand why that's even put in there and why it's not necessarily a condemnation, but it's not necessarily a uh, stamp of approval either. But that still doesn't help us answer the question, which is, why is he a man of God, or a man after God's own heart? I mean, we can see that there's some justification here. We can see that he's done some some wrong stuff, but, I mean, a, a man after God's own heart wouldn't take many wives for himself, would he? Well, I think to, to start to get that answer, we've got to turn back to Second Kings now. Now, the, the context for this, if you'll remember, is uh, Saul has... Fought, we walked through judges. Israel didn't have a king. Israel demands a king. Samuel, who is the last judge, God calls him to anoint Saul as the first king. So Saul is the first king, and he's been declaring war, and there's a certain process that has to go through. And remember, Saul isn't the real king. Yahweh is the king. It is Saul's job to do what Yahweh tells him to do. And so part of this is before they go to war, the prophet who speaks on the behalf of God is to tell Saul what to do. So he's supposed to make some sacrifices, and then Saul will hear from the prophet whether or not war is going to happen. So, that's the process. But now he's up against the Philistines in war, and we'll just pick up uh, we'll just pick up in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. So what's going on here? He's supposed to go up to war. He's gathered his armies together. And what is his army doing? They're leaving. They're fleeing. And there's nothing he can do about it. Imagine you are Saul right now. You know you're going up against the vicious Philistines. You know your chances of winning without God are slim to none. But not only that, but you see people deserting. And deserting is infectious. So the more people desert, the more others join. So he's starting to see his troops dwindle, and he's starting to panic. He sees this big commotion over here, right? He's going to see this huge failure unless he jumps in and does something. So what is it that he does? He offers the burnt offering. Now that's not the process that they're supposed to go through. He's supposed to wait for, the, for Samuel to come. He knows that, that he's sinning, but he's like, God needs my help. I need to take things into my own hand. Because clearly, God's not doing what he's supposed to do. So I need to just jump in here, and I need to help God out. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. 
Do you see his response here? What have you done? It wasn't like, oh, I have sinned. I didn't trust God. Oh, no. It was, well, do you see the situation over here? It was a really hairy situation over there. If you were in my shoes, you would have done the exact same thing because things were looking bad. And if I didn't do something soon, things were only going to get worse, right? And, and not only is it all this stuff going on, but Samuel, you were supposed to be here and you weren't. So really, it's kind of your fault and it's that fault. And I'm really in the Indians. You see how it just forced me to do this thing that I wasn't supposed to do? I mean, it's justifying and blaming the whole time. But not only that, but you see his hard heart as well. So this whole process was supposed to be so that he could connect with Yahweh and that Yahweh could give him the orders. It wasn't just a surefire way to get a victory. But what does, what does Saul do? What is he, well, he's steeped in tradition. He thinks, this is the process. This is the little hoop that I have to do. It's kind of mysticism, isn't it? If only I jump through these hoops, then God gives me the victory and he's really the puppet that I can manipulate. And how often do we do that with our own walk? where we just try to manipulate God, if I just say the sinner's prayer enough, then God will give me salvation. Because he has to, because I said the sinner's prayer. Instead of saying, it's really about my heart. And it it doesn't matter if I say the prayer or not, as long as my heart truly believes and puts its faith in Christ. We do the same thing. We justify, we blame, we try to become mystical about our relationship with God. And all of it falls flat. God's not fooled. He knows your heart. He sees through all of it. And so Samuel responds, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which He commanded you, For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. It's not just that you have disobeyed. It's that you have disobeyed and you refuse to repent. You disobeyed and when confronted with your sin, you just made excuses. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So we know that this man will be David. And that he, he has, he's, he's a man after God's own heart. So what does that exactly mean, to be a man after God's own heart? Well, I think a little bit of context helps. If we jump over to verse four, or chapter 14, verse 7, we, we see that Jonathan is Saul's son. Uh, they're still at a war against the Philistines. They're not getting the victory, but Jonathan develops a plan. And he tells his plan to his armor bearer. And it's kind of a wild plan. They're going to go off on their own. They're going to go fight together on their own. Most people would think that's, that's just a death sentence, right? But listen to what his armor bearer says to him. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Now what's really interesting in this translation is they've added soul, but that heart is the same heart that we find all the way back in chapter 13. And it's almost the exact same saying. And basically what the armor bearer is saying is that I'm going to follow you to the death. It is you who is the master, and I am the servant. So what's happening with Saul? Saul is trying to usurp God's power, right? Saul is trying to usurp God's authority. 
Saul is really trying to be God of his own life. It's not, I will follow after you, Lord. If you confront me with my sin, I will repent. I'll say, you're right, and I'll take the consequences. It's, God, I want these things done, and I want to try to manipulate you to get these things done. So what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? It means to be someone who is willing to follow God no matter what. And when confronted with your own sin, it's a willingness to say, you're right, God, and I was wrong. And that's what we find in Psalm 51. So David is anointed king. Saul tries to kill him. Saul eventually dies by someone else's hand. David becomes king. God blesses his kingdom. And then there comes a moment of utter failure for David. Well, all the other men are at war, he stays home. And while he's at home, he sees a girl. And he lusts after that girl. And remember, it's his own heart that causes the lust. It wasn't her. And so, he sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. Now, that's already a problem, but an even bigger problem is one of the mighty men of valor, one of the most feared warriors in all of Israel, Well, he's married to her. So what does David try to do? He tries to cover up his sin. He invites him back home. Tries to get him drunk so he'll go sleep with her. But he refuses. So Uriah then gets sent back to the front lines. And David devises a plot to have Uriah killed. And he says, go to the most fiercest part of the battle and have everyone pull back from Uriah so that he's off there by himself. Uriah gets killed. David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And he thinks he has covered up his sin. He thinks nobody knows. But the Israelites aren't fools. They know exactly what's happened. He hasn't fooled anyone. Oftentimes in our sin, we think we have people fooled. You're not fooling anyone. But then he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. So, Psalm 51, the heading starts, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So, that's setting out the timeline for us. So, David writes this psalm after he's been confronted about his own sin. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So verses 1 and 2 sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. And it's all about being washed, being cleansed from his sin. David comes humbly before God. Recognizing God as a merciful Savior. God's forgiveness is based on God's goodness. David recognizes that. Cleanse me from my sin. He recognizes that God's forgiveness is based on his goodness, and it is not based on anything you and I can do. You cannot earn God's forgiveness. You can't work for it. 
We get caught up in this game where we think that we have to somehow beat ourselves up to be forgiven by God. And so what we do is we sin, we feel this shame, and then we think that we got to go into like this dark room by ourselves and whip ourselves and beat ourselves up. And if we just beat ourselves hard enough, God will eventually forgive us because that shows that we're truly repentant, right? And that doesn't do it at all. God's forgiveness is based on his goodness, not on your work. Verses 3 through 6 describes David's depravity. For I know my transgressions. This word know in the Hebrew is yada. And it means to have an intimate knowledge. To have an intimate knowledge. It's not just that he academically knew that he was depraved. Sometimes we talk about our own depravity, and it's kind of this academic exercise, right? So we just say, yeah, I'm depraved. And and you don't really think about how truly depraved you are. This is an intimate knowledge. He recognized just how absolutely evil he can be. And you might be saying, yeah, but I've never killed a man and stolen his wife. And that may be true. But I know the human heart, and I know how depraved you can be. Just because you've never had the ability to do that doesn't mean that you're above doing that. For I know my transgressions. Transgressions are evil works. So he admits that he he has evil works in his heart. And my sin is ever before me. Sin is uh, everything that misses the mark. God has a holy standard, and if you miss that holy standard, you have missed the mark. So he covers all of his evil works, but even if he was not just so wicked, he still couldn't hit the mark that God has set for holiness. So he recognizes how he has fallen from the holy standard that God has set before us. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I know a lot of people that struggle with that one particular verse because people have committed evil against us. And, and when we look at this, and, and even this repentance, this uh, a confession that he's making towards God, even that, I mean, he killed a guy. He, he, he took a girl, got her impregnated, and then killed her husband. How is he not saying that he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba? He did both, right? He definitely sinned to more people than God. But I think what he's getting at here, what what he's trying to nail down is that all sin that is ever committed is revealing a rebellion against God. Sometimes we try to justify our sin that we have against someone else and say, well, they deserve that. I hit that dude because he deserved it. He was making me mad. Instead of recognizing that every time I sin against someone else, it's really revealing my rebellion against God. All sin is rebellion against God. So that's what he's saying here when he says, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's saying, my sin has revealed, I thought I wasn't rebellious against you, God. I thought I was pretty good. You had blessed me. I was living this great life. But this has revealed how really rebellious I am against you. so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David here is recognizing and accepting the consequences for his sin. He's saying, look, God, you're right. 
The words you spoke about my sin, what you said about the consequences of my sin, they are correct, and I'm ready to accept them. So often, what we do is we say we're sorry because we don't like the consequences. This is the difference between true repentance and a simple I'm sorry. I'm sorry says, I don't like the consequences that I'm receiving right now. They're no fun. If you have kids, you've seen this time and time again, right? Your kid gets in trouble, and what do they do right away? I'm sorry. Well, why are you sorry? Because I don't like those consequences. Now, some people have a, have a problem with people who are confronted with sin, who have been caught in their sin, and then repent. Because they feel like it's not true repentance. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think sometimes confronting someone on their sin gives them the opportunity to have real repentance. And that's what's happening here with David. I'm sorry means I don't like the consequence. But true repentance says, I messed up. And the consequences of my sin are righteous. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, some people get confused on this and think that David's mother was sinning when uh, she got pregnant, and I don't think that's what he's getting at here. What he's saying is that uh, he was born depraved. That's simply what he's saying, that he was born into sin, he was born depraved, he had a wicked heart to begin with, as well as all humans do. This is a huge worldview issue. Do you believe... Man is basically good, or man is basically evil. And what you believe about man being basically good or basically evil will dictate how you make policy. We see here that the biblical worldview is that man is born with a depraved heart. It's no no matter how good of a system you create in society, man's going to mess it up somehow. We love to find ways for our wickedness to come out. Behold, you delight in the truth, in the inward being, and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So what he's saying here is because he was born in depravity, because he is depraved, because he has a wicked heart, he doesn't just need behavior modification. It's not just better behavior. He needs a total heart change. And the only one that can give him a total heart change is God. Parents, this is so huge for us. Because we like to have well-behaved kids. So often what we do is behavior modification. Just change your behavior so that I don't have to deal with your sinful behavior. But what our kids really need is a heart change. And the only way they're going to get a true heart change is through Christ. But if you're not speaking into your child's heart, you are setting them up for rebellion later on down the road. Verses 7 through 9 are a plea for restoration. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So this reference to hyssop, when someone had uh, leprosy, so leprosy was kind of just a general skin disease. So there was all kinds of different 
types of leprosy, but when someone was, had leprosy, they were banished from society. Now, someone might have it, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, their leprosy would go away. When they, when they were cured of leprosy, they would have to come back, and they would see the priest. And the priest would ceremonially wash them with water and hyssop. Hyssop is a great paintbrush. So they'd get washed over with that, and then they would be declared clean. So what David's saying here is that he is dirty, and he needs God to make him clean. He needs God to make him pure. And that when God does that, then he will be whiter than snow. And if you get the imagery here, think of some of our really huge blizzards. And you open your door. Before, you know, people start driving around and the mud starts mixing with it. And it's just this beautiful layer of pure white. And that's what he's saying. When God cleanses you, you are fully and utterly pure. You don't have to continue to work to become better pure. You can't be more pure. You're not less pure. It's not like a scale that God's working on. When God cleanses you, there is no blemish left. The New Testament writers would say, you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. Meaning God has done it all. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David is looking for restoration here. He's saying, God, your discipline will eventually restore me. God's discipline is never punitive, meaning he doesn't just discipline you to make you pay. It's restorative. When God disciplines us, it's to bring us back to him. Verses 10 through 12 are kind of outline the restoration process. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So some people get a little confused also about having the Holy Spirit taken away. In the Old Testament, before, the, before Christ makes the new covenant, what we had were what we see is a, a spiritual anointings. So God would use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would rush upon somebody and anoint them for a special project that God had for their life. So every king in Israel, not every king, but Saul gets the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual anointing. And then when he sins, the Holy Spirit leaves him. So David witnessed that, that Saul was anointed for the special purpose of being king over Israel, and then he witnessed that uh, spiritual anointing being taken away, and he's saying, don't do that to me as well. God, restore me to the place that I was. The difference that we have is with the new covenant, it's not a spiritual anointing, but a spiritual indwelling. So the Holy Spirit, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you come to the point in your life where you say, I am depraved, I have a wicked heart, I have been rebellious against God, and there's no way I can earn His favor, but I also recognize that He died on the cross for my sins. He, he took the punishment that I so deserve for my rebellion. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, 
then the Holy Spirit begins to indwell you, and He begins to change you from the inside out. He changes your heart. And we find throughout the New Testament that that indwelling of the Spirit can't be lost. So an anointing of the Spirit can be taken away. That's where God anoints someone for a special purpose. The indwelling of the Spirit can't be lost. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So he's asking God to use his sin for God's glory and for other people's good. How often have you done that with your sin? That's something we rarely do, right? Like, hey God, would you just, I I know I messed up and I have these horrible consequences coming. Would you just use these horrible consequences in my life to glorify yourself and for other people's good? No, usually we're like, just take those consequences away, right? But that's what he's saying here. He's saying, hey God, I'm just, I want to follow you no matter what. And I want this whole thing, I messed up so bad, but I want it to be a lesson that glorifies you and shows other people who you are. God will never waste your life. The sin that's been committed against you and the sin that you have committed God doesn't waste. So we see Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. And what does God do? He uses Pharaoh's hard heart for God's glory and people's good. The difference between David and Pharaoh is David had a soft heart. Pharaoh had a hard heart. In the midst of your sin, will you soften your heart to God? Or will you harden it like Pharaoh? God's going to use it for his glory and others' good no matter what. But it makes a difference on how God uses it. Then I will teach transgressors your way. So 13 through 19 uh, is how God will use David's sin for God's glory and our good. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltlessness. O God, O God of my salvation. So we see right here that he's going to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to him. So, So God is going to use this horrible sin to help others turn back to God. That's one of the parts of confession and giving our testimony. Our testimony, I love Ken's sermon a couple weeks ago about how his story is just a small part of God's bigger story. When we share our stories, it helps people understand That God does amazing things in our lives. That God changes our heart. When we confess, hey, this was how jacked up I was. But God took my heart and he's changed me. Other people who are steeped in addictions, other people who are steeped in sin, realize that heart change is possible. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So what was Paul or Saul's problem? Saul's problem was that he thought it was all about the process. It wasn't about the heart. If I just jump through these certain hoops, no matter how hard my heart is against God, no matter how I'm trying to usurp his power, he's going to respect me because I'm king of Israel after all. And what David recognizes here is it's not about the process, but about his heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
O God, you will not despise. So David learns it's not about the externals. Some people think that they are more holy or more righteous because they come to church and they sing a song and they give a certain amount of money to poor people. That doesn't make you righteous. It's a good thing. But it doesn't make you righteous. So a broken heart is a heart that is no longer trying to call the shots. In our depravity, we always struggle to be God in our own lives. In our depravity, we wrestle with God, we shake our fist, and we say, forget you, God, I want to be the God. I want to be the one calling the shots. A broken and contrite heart is one that says, God, I messed up, and I no longer want to fight against you. Lead the way. Verses 18 and 19 show us that David's sin affected the entire nation. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. So David's sin affected the entire nation. He thought it was just this little sin that he could cover up that no one would ever find out. And yet, it had national impacts. Now, you and I aren't kings of a nation, but we do have spheres of influence. And every sin in your life is not isolated only to you. Your sin affects others. Your sin impacts others. So what makes David a man after God's own heart? Saul was confronted with his sin, and he justified, and he blamed, and he refused to repent. David, when confronted with his sin, says, you're right, God. I messed up, and I deserve whatever consequence you give me. How do you react when confronted with sin? Do you justify and blame? Or do you say, you're right, God. I deserve whatever consequence you give me. And may it all be to God's glory and others' good. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that we can have questions and your word answers it. That it lays out how we can follow you. And Lord, we pray for changed hearts. That we would no longer try to be the one controlling and calling the shot. But that we would submit ourselves to you and say, Lord, we wreck things. But whatever we've wrecked, you can make beautiful again.